like last week we sort of talked, we put a couple of like uh, topics in a uh, Google Doc to sort of see yeah what people are interested in. What I was sort of interested in is how I put market buybacks there. Um, but what I was more generally interested in is, I guess, how do you sort of conduct like large market orders, right? Um, and obviously that sort of does, uh, yeah, encompass market buybacks because, yeah, I mean, say you're a project and you want to buy by your token, you want to do it in the most efficient way possible. So I guess this was just me trying to research that um, a bit. And just uh, like a... a Four notes like the we're sort of going about this. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I didn't have well, like two weeks to sort of research this. But I, I, I didn't have enough time to be honest. Um, there's so many things that you can go into uh, on this topic, and uh, I had a lot of other stuff to do. So I, I yeah, I guess this is somewhat, um, yeah, it's like uh, superficial in some way, but uh, maybe it can be just like a, a initial little uh, presentation to sort of see if this interests anybody else to sort of maybe uh, look into it a bit more too but yeah um the sd index just like the quick a quick uh breakdown for what we're going to be talking about is yeah uh, uh, the objective of like uh, how, yeah, the objective with large uh, market buybacks uh, or orders uh, and then we're going to look at how tradfire should have do it uh, how it's sort of done in crypto markets um then talk a bit about um like central exchanges and dexes and then uh, some interesting on-chain options okay so as you can say the objective with uh yeah a, a market a large market audit is to sort of keep the price down and as in not affect the price right so it's uh, pretty much yeah, acquire uh, a large amount of tokens um without uh yeah at a cost uh, efficient uh, in the most cost efficient way right um obviously this sort of means that like some undesirable um situations would be yeah price appreciation uh, if you sort of like buy loads of tokens, that buy pressure is going to bump the price, and that means you're going to get a worse fill price overall. Um, but also, it could also mean that like obviously buy signals, uh, well, orders in general to the market, sort of they, um, they, they signal something, right? They signal uh, information, I guess you could say. And this information can uh, many times sort of be permanent, especially in, uh, I guess you could say, yeah, um, on chain, it is actually worse than traditional um to some degree traditional finance uh, and i guess that is also encompassed in mev right so uh, minor accessible value or maximal accessible value whichever one you prefer i guess um but yeah so that is, that's like the objective with uh large uh, when you go about a large order right sort of to keep the price down but acquire tokens large amount of tokens at the same time so uh, i guess i sort of started like looking at how tradfile I uh, do it because it just sort of made sense. And the way that this sort of works in, in traditional markets is pretty much with bots and something that's called algorithmic trading. Um, now, the idea is that if you sort of, let's say you want to buy $100 million worth of Apple stock, if you sort of uh, want, uh, as we sort of just went over, right, if you do that all in one go, so to speak, all very quickly, you're going to indicate something to the market, which uh, is like information signal, so you pretty you pretty you will likely get um, print run to some to, to some degree, and somebody will sort of say, "Oh, this person knows something, so I'm going to also buy um, before they can sort of finish their buying, so to speak." Um, and uh, it also means that um, you're obviously going to pump 
the price because you sort of yeah, um, it's a very large order. Uh, obviously, it depends on the depth of liquidity and whatnot, but we'll, we'll get to that soon. Um, but the way that they do it in traditional finance is, is using this the bots and algorithmic trading to sort of say we're going to split this large order up into many small orders um, and conduct it over like a very uh, long, well, a prolonged period of time, right? And then we're going to link that to a benchmark. Okay, so this what this pretty much means is um, that you're going to sort of aim for efficiency, okay? And efficiency means sort of being uh, as close to this benchmark as possible, right? And I know this may seem sound a bit um, confusing at first, but the, pretty much what you're trying to do is you're uh, looking at um, three things pretty much, okay? So you're looking at order size, so how much do you want to buy the period, right? So let's say you want to buy the eight hours, and let's just keep it simple, you want to split it in, into a per hour period, so yeah, you're going to have like 100 million uh, over eight hours, so you'd, you'd, have, um, uh, you'd have a set amount per hour, right? So that's the order size. Then you'd look at the order book uh, depth, right? So what is actually available on the market at the time, right? You don't really want to be buying when there's uh, a low depth because you're going to get a shit in the slippage. Um, and then you're, this is where the, the benchmark comes in, right? You're going to look at the input signal um, combined with the, an aggression factor. So what does this sort of mean, right? Um, the, uh, there's loads of like, different types of um, algorithms that are, are used, right? So you've got a couple uh, examples like the ones called one of them is called steps, VWAP, VWAP. You can see them there at the bottom. So this is an, an example of uh, VWAP, right? It's the, the, yellow, uh, the yellow line there. And basically what this is, is it's the benchmark that I was just talking about, okay? And in this particular case, um, it, sorry, it says VWAP, but it's actually TWAP. <laughs> but anyway, uh, it's pretty much taking like the average price over a set period of time, okay? Um, and what this sort of does uh, as a benchmark, it sort of says, okay, so rather than sort of buying at the current price, we're going to wait until the current price is closer to this benchmark, okay? And that last, um, that third sort of uh, bullet point that was mentioned, my input plus regression factor, is what this pretty much means, right? So uh, you're going to look at um, order book depth, you're going to look at the order size that you want in comparison to that order book depth, uh, and then you're going to sort of look at where the price is in relation to uh, your benchmark. And in this case, let's just take the, TWAP as the benchmark. So let's say if it's really far away, well, yeah, maybe you can do some uh, like a low aggression, meaning that you're going to buy maybe a little bit. Um, uh, you're going to buy a little bit, but then when it gets very close to this uh, TWAP, then you can buy uh, a lot more because it's, you're going to uh, up the aggression factor, right? Um, because it's, it's a better price. Okay. Um, so that's sort of how it's conducted in traditional markets. Um, could you go to the next slide, please? In crypto markets, uh, yeah, it's pretty similar, right? We're, we're, we're not going to reinvent the wheel. It sort of is trying to go about the same idea, right? We're still trying to acquire um, the most amount of tokens for the best price. And that means we are sort of going to have a similar combination of, like, yeah, uh, sizes of the order, liquidity, liquidity depth, and the aggression factor. So in crypto markets, obviously, we've got two ways to buy, right? We can use uh, centralized exchanges uh, or decentralized exchanges. Um, more commonly known as like on-chain, I guess you'd say. Now, in a centralized exchange, it pretty much is going to work in the same way as uh, as a TradFi market. And to be honest, they use the same uh, model, which is the club model, <laughs> Central Limit Order Book. Um, and this is pretty much uh, yeah how Bitcoin markets work anyway, right? So Binance, Coinbase, all these uh, types of markets, they use the same 
method. And it pretty much works very well for uh, liquid markets. Um, so where there's a lot of interest for there to be, um, yeah, there's people that have these assets and they sort of are offering to buy and sell them. Um, and that sort of results in low slippage um, on large, order, large orders because there's, yeah, there's a lot of people interested in sort of trading. There's a lot of uh, volume, I guess you'd say. Uh, and that results in like a tight spread, which is desirable. Um, and I guess the like, con for this is that it's pretty bad, bad for like illiquid markets. And liquid markets can also be understood as markets that have less interest because, uh, yeah, I don't know, an obscure stock or coin. If we take this uh, club model, then, yeah, um, it's sort of based on the interest of people being uh, willing to sort of provide liquidity um, or ask some bids at certain prices, right? So uh, that's a result in there being like uh, large spreads and you know, to that effect slippage too for like illiquid markets. Like the, the club model isn't very good for like small markets, I guess you could say. So it's just like a bit of a, an infograph for um, a club model. You can just imagine... Um, many people, the top left, uh, many, many people sort of, uh, yeah, presenting their offers to the market. So they're making the market pretty much. Um, the exchange sort of then uh, aggregates them right into like this database, this order book, um, and then sort of publishes an aggregate uh, of all of them. And then, yeah, this is what people sort of uh, trade against, right? So uh, if somebody buys something, they consider it a ticker. And uh, if you sort of offer something, you're a maker, so to speak. Um, and, and yeah, that's sort of how, like a general overview, very basic overview of of how it works, and a bit of a, a bit more of a visual way, I guess we could say. So when it comes to decentralized exchanges, now things are a bit different. Um, obviously, some examples like uh, Uniswap, Balancer, Suki. Um, the the good thing about uh, Dex is is that obviously when you provide liquidity on, say, a Uniswap V2 pool. Uh, due to the way that it's designed, you sort of are providing liquidity for the entirety, like from zero to infinity. Okay, so rather than, for example, saying on a, a like in a club model, um, like in a, a traditional uh, order book, you aren't just saying, okay, I'm willing to sell my uh, stock at this price or my tokens at this price. So I'm willing to buy at this price. No, so you, you pretty much provide your assets um, within pool and then uh, uh, and um, a function sort of determines the price of the pool, right? And then obviously that determines the uh, the relationship you have between those two assets. Right? So you're going to be uh, either in one, uh, you're going to be in one asset more than the other, or you could be equal. It's going to vary, right? So you're going to um, the LP position is going to change uh, based on the, the the price. Okay. So that's uh, a positive because if you think about it, the, the there's going to be a lot. Uh, it's going to be a lot easier for like liquid markets or markets that have less interest to be more liquid, so to speak, even that sounds a bit contradictory. Um, but then on the other side of it, it's going to pretty much result in there being, yeah, this like pilotage uh, for large orders. Uh, and the next I'll show why. But, um, um, and the reason that is, is pretty much just keeping it simple and just keeping uh, keeping it to the unity model. Is this uh, x, uh, x times y equals k, the constant product formula, okay? And this is like the basic um, formula of how it sort of does uh, what it does, right? So let's just take the example of having a pool with like 20,000 UCC and 10 ETH, okay? So the constant product of that, so 20K times 10 is 200K, okay? So uh, you can pretty much infer that the price from that, as in you can calculate the price um, 
and uh, the price obviously for uh, in in USDT terms uh, per ETH is um, is two thousand. Okay, so you're pretty much taking the USDC and dividing it by the ETH. Okay, so uh, twenty thousand divided by ten, two thousand. So the reason that like large order sizes don't sort of work or are less efficient and obviously less desirable um, is as follows, right? So if let's say Alice wants to buy um, two thousand USDC of ETH, right? In a pool that's got uh, yeah this twenty thousand um, USDC and ten ETH, right? So she's going to put two thousand in, and uh, if she's putting two thousand in, then obviously the constant product, the K on the right hand side, has to stay constant, meaning that if you rearrange the formula, uh, yeah, you're pretty much going to get uh, nine as the result. Meaning that um, if she puts two thousand USDC in, it means that she's taken one ETH out. Okay, so obviously uh, that means that uh, for that one ETH, she pretty much should take. 2000 USDC, meaning the average buy price was 2000 uh, USDC. Okay? But what happens if she, like, let's say, tries to buy a, uh, a sizable amount of that um, liquid pool, right? So in the first example, where she was trying to buy 2000 USDC, that was a very small percentage of like, the entirety of the pool, right? So, um, yeah. But in the second example, she's trying to uh, exchange 19,000 USDC uh, for ETH, right? So that is pretty much like a very high percentage of the pool. Okay, so what she's doing is she's inputting those 19,000 into the pool. That means there's going to be 39,000 USDC. And again, rearranging the formula, uh, you get five ETH left in the pool, meaning that her average price, right? So those 19,000 uh, ETH, so pretty much bought her five, sorry, those 19,000 USDC pretty much bought her five ETH, which turned out to be an average price of 38,000 uh, sorry, uh, 3,800 USDC per ETH. So it's uh, as you sort of, uh, it's disincentivizing large buys because basically as you sort of like try to trade um, with a pool and the, the trade is uh, quite sizable in comparison to the liquidity of the pool, you're going to get a worse bill price. So this is sort of like a disadvantage of the traditional AMM model. Yeah, and this is sort of like a, a caveat um, because... One of the, like, some other considerations that have to be made in, in like, uh, for on-chain is that you're going to have, uh, yeah, there's, there's a really good article called, um, actually, I can't remember the exact name, but it, I'll, I'll send it into the, the, the chat. There's this, uh, this whole thing has to be uh, sort of uh, caveated in fact that there is an unavoidable, uh, at least currently, uh, in current day, like, technology and Ethereum, you can't sort of avoid to a there's a degree that we can't sort of avoid of uh, any right? So this sort of um, uh, maximum extractable value that sort of uh, exists in uh, with on-chain transactions. That sort of um, some examples are like front running, back running, and like sandwich attacks. And the reason is uh, due to the nature of like uh, public uh, public open blockchains. Um, the reason being is that because when you sort of submit a transaction to be um, yeah, to the chain, right? So let's say Alice, she wants to buy 20,000 uh, UTC um, worth ETH, right? Um, she is pretty much signaling, uh, as I mentioned before, that signal to the market, okay? And who is receiving that signal, okay? So if she's simply a user, she's not, she's not a miner, right? Um, she's pretty much signaling that information to the miner, okay? Um, and that information then goes into the mempool before it's actually uh, I guess mined in a in a block on Ethereum, right? And then 
that mempool is publicly visible and the data in there is publicly visible, meaning that uh, that can sort of that information can sort of be uh, yeah, it can be a privilege to somebody, and then yeah, they can sort of attack that uh, uh, that signal that Alice sort of put out there, right? So let's say Alice wants to buy twenty k in one transaction, uh, although that may not move the price much in a very liquid pool. Let's say let's just assume it does, okay. Um, somebody will see that uh, a bot will pretty much see that transaction in the mempool, and they'll sort of say, okay, well, I'm going to buy it up uh, before you can sort of uh, get to it, right? I can, uh, and the way that that's done is you just like uh, submit a higher gas price, okay? So let's say Alice has only paid 20 guay for her transaction. Well, a bot would just say, okay, 21 guay, <laughs> and I'll get in before you. Um, because of the, the ordering, and they'll pretty much buy it up, and then Alice will come along, she'll buy it, and then they'll pretty much back, uh, they'll pretty much sell it back to her, right? So they'll make a, a little arbitrage off of her. Um, and I guess this is, uh, like I say, something that is not very sort of inevitable to some degree. Um, there are sort of ways to get around this. Uh, I think there is, for example, um, there's a deck called CowSwap. Um, which does some interesting things to sort of get around this, but we won't be talking about that today. I don't know if, if that's interesting. We can maybe dive into that too uh, on another sort of group. But uh, but yeah, I guess that was just something to to, to keep in mind. So uh, okay, so this is like, I guess the the last part. Um, so yeah, some on-chain methods. Uh, again, I, I uh, these are gonna be a bit brief because they're all pretty in depth, and you can spend a lot of time on each of them. Um, and I've actually not had time to look at the third, uh, the third option, inverse bonds. So uh, and subsequently uh, reverse LBPs either. I mean, even though we sort of did an article on them, I mean, you could you could probably spend a lot more time investigating whether or not it's a viable method. And um, but yeah, guess today we're just going to talk about the TWAM and concentrated liquidity. Okay, so TWAM uh, stands for Time Weighted Average uh, Market Maker. Okay. And it sort of tries to mimic what a traditional, uh, like a TradFi um, algo does. Okay, so um, in the sense that it takes the large order, so somebody wants wants to execute a large order, um, and rather than it being sort of yeah executed quickly, uh, it sort of says, okay, the best way to do this is to uh, execute it over a longer period of time, uh, which will obviously have a uh, a lesser price impact on the AMM. Okay. And yeah, so it pretty much looks into smaller orders, okay? And this results in the, uh, oh, sorry, I saw another voice. So basically, the, the same way in a traditional market that you have to uh, split a large order into smaller orders, you pretty much have to do the same thing on chain, okay? So uh, what does that sort of mean? It means that you're gonna pretty much spend a lot of time um, chunking your like large order into smaller orders. Uh, it sort of uh, equates to like, for human error, like maybe um, mistype what your sort of um, yeah, human error, error, error in general, I guess you could say. Um, and obviously that's going to have an increased uh, gas cost, right? Because um, you're pretty much executing many small trades rather than one large one. Um, suffice to say, it's, it's, yeah, it's cumbersome. Um, so the T1 sort of like uh, is the TradFi equivalent to sort of solve this problem, so to speak. Um, the way it sort of works is quite is a bit complicated. I'll explain it. Um, but the re uh, generally, um, say generally, 
but you can sort of think of it as having um, as an embedded EMM, okay, uh, EMM rather, and rather than uh, there being like the way that traditional uh, MMs work, where you sort of yeah uh, submit an order and it gets um, processed in one, right? You sort of submit long-term orders. Okay, okay so let's say you want to buy um, know, 100,000 USDC worth worth of ETH, then yeah, and you submit that all in one. But what the uh, T1 sort of does is it sort of uh, takes that and splits it into um, it splits it over different uh, block times, I guess you could say. Um, so yeah, as it states there, so I uh, divide the order into uh, infinite amounts of small orders, and it is sort of distributed over different blocks, okay? Um, and in terms of gas, I'm not really going to go into that, but it pretty much saves on gas too. So uh, it just solves the problem of like the time requirements for, from the human side. Like You don't have to be uh, the person to sort of split your um, order into like all these sub-orders. Um, there is obviously no human error there because it's been executed by a bot and it's sort of doing it over a prolonged period of time. Over, uh, yeah, so you can have a better uh, fill price, I guess you could say. Okay, yeah, so um, this is just like again, uh, more of a practical example. And the article that sort of linked explains it better than I probably will. But anyway, um, so let's say Alice, uh, she wants to buy 100 million USDC worth of V. Okay, so uh, let's just say she wants to execute this order over. Uh, 2,000 blocks, okay. Let's just say that's, uh, I don't know, eight hours or something like that, but it's, yeah. Pretty much she uh, said, okay, I want this amount of uh, USDC to be, um, sorry, this amount of ETH to be bought uh, over this period of time. And that then sort of equates to a price per block. Okay, so in this case, it's 50,000 USDC per block. Uh, on the other side, and also that's a buy, okay, so that's just trying to buy Ethereum, okay. So on the other side, uh, we've got... Um, Bob and Charlie, who are trying to sell Ethereum for USDC, okay? So Bob is trying to sell uh, 500 ETH, um, again, which is a random period, so 5,000 blocks. Uh, that sort of equates to uh, like 0.1 uh, ETH per block, okay? And similarly, Charlie uh, wants to sell 100 ETH over 2,000 blocks, and that equates to uh, 0.05, okay? So what this, uh, what Team 1 sort of does is it takes these, it matches these uh, buy and sell orders, okay? So um, in a way, what it's doing is grouping, right? It's uh, sort of pooling these two uh, sell orders, so uh, of Bob and Charlie, okay? Um, and as you can see in like the uh, the two stack blocks, the the yellow and the purple block, um, the price per like the execution price for the first two thousand blocks is going to be uh, zero point fifteen ETH, simply because it's the cumulative amount of the offer, right? So it's uh, it's zero point one and zero point zero five. Um, and then after that, obviously Charlie has, has been filled um, completely, like he's been exhausted. So uh, yeah, that only leaves like the um, the sell order for Bob, um, meaning that the price will be um, yeah the fill price will be 0.1 ETH. Okay. Um, as you can see on the far right, uh, that sort of uh, what does this mean? I guess for Bob and Charlie, well, um, because uh, Bob is sort of um, providing more uh, ETH, I should say. Um, he, oh, sorry, he's uh, providing more ETH per block uh, relative to the total amount, right? This like 0.15. He's going to get obviously more of the USDC that's sort of input into the pool, and Charlie's going to get uh, less. Okay, just uh, yeah, it's just how it works. Um, 
So what does it mean then? I guess like for the, uh, so obviously Alice is trying to buy uh, Ethereum with USDC. So those uh, for the for the first two thousand blocks, she's going to uh, get an execution price of zero point one five ETH. Okay. Um, and then after that point, yeah, um, Charlie and uh, and Alice sort of have, will have completed their transactions, and then it'll just be uh, Bob with uh, well, obviously in this case, this is just like a, a segregated market, so we'd have to assume there'd be more transactions too. Um, but yeah, pretty much after that, uh, Bob would have um, the price per block of like uh, zero point one ETH. Um, yeah, I don't know if that was <laughs> helpful in any in any degree, but yeah, um, the article does a pretty good job of explaining it. Um, but yeah, so I guess you could say so the the TWAM um, it sort of does achieve its goal of like executing large orders over a prolonged period of time simply because um, of this like mechanic. Uh, now. Uh, Another option is uh, concentrated liquidity. Okay, so this was first um, seen in Uni V3. Well, actually, I'm not sure if it was first seen in Uni V3, but I guess it was popularized by Uni V3. Um, and interestingly, it can uh, somewhat function as, yeah, like an, a form of uh, on-chain order book. And the reason being is that in like a, a V2, uh, a V2 pool, like a Uni V2 pool, you're pretty much providing liquidity from zero to infinity. Like I said before, right? You should provide in your assets, and wherever the um, the price sort of goes, it sort of dictates how much uh, one asset is going to be changed into the other. Right? So it's not capped, I guess you could say. And the the reason that's bad is because it's very capital efficient. Um, and the article, I think, at the top left, you can uh, you can sort of read that if you're interested. It sort of goes over a lot more uh, more things because there's a lot more things that are interesting about concentrated liquidity. But um, why is it important for, like, why, why could it be important for, like, uh, large market buys? Um, the reason being is, is pretty much because it sort of uh, seems to combine, yeah, this, like, on-chain order book aspect of like, low slippage um, with, uh, yeah, then the, the DEX model, the AMM model. So, um, yeah, pretty much what I, I just said, actually. Yeah, so, so rather than, like, having this, so this X times... Uh, y equals k, the constant product is like that, that uh, uh, the back bolt line. Um, normally, in a V2 pool, you're pretty much providing liquidity from zero to infinity on that price curve. Um, but in uh, concentrated liquidity or V3, uh, you're only choosing a range right, to operate within. Okay, so uh, I don't know, let's say uh, you want to operate between uh, 1950 and 2000 uh, USDC, um, sorry, price in, in USDC terms. So whenever the price is is within that range, you're going to be yeah uh, earning fees uh, within that range. Um, yeah, but what happens if the price is sort of outside of that range? Well, uh, it's what it pretty much does it converts the entirety of your LP into one of into the assets, sorry, into one of the two assets, right? So depending on how uh, which way the price goes, it pretty much means that you can be converted either fully into ETH or fully into USDC. Okay. Um, and what this sort of means is that you can have like a limit order on a DEX, which is pretty interesting. Um, and obviously, yeah, keep in mind you have to have a tight range because if you sort of set a very broad range, then you're not just yeah, you're just going to get this uh, the traditional issue because you're permanent loss. Um, whereas if the range is pretty tight, then you're going to get it um, sort of like popping in and out of this price range. And as it sort of exits the price range, you're going to get it converting. Um, let's say all of your 
yeah, ETH USDT LP is going to become uh, USDT, for example, or vice versa. Right? So it could act as a form of limit order in uh, in some way. So I guess the benefit from uh, from this uh, is that there pretty much is no slippage, uh, simply because like your your position is being converted in the pool rather than it being a trade per se, and the liquidity is concentrated into a small range, so sort of mimics an order book. Uh, so I guess it's sort of got the uh, that benefit. Right? There's no there's no slippage for for large orders. Um, but one caveat here is that you would sort of have to uh, keep an eye on it. Okay, so let's say for example, yeah, you're in. You treat the price range of 1950 and 2000 um, USDC per, per ETH. And let's just say that uh, you want it to act like this limit order. Okay, Obviously, this wasn't the intentional design, or at least I don't think it was, but it sort of acts as like a, you know, a, a makeshift limit order type thing. Um, so one thing you have to keep in mind is that if the price comes back into that range, your, your LP will sort of be reconverted back into um, two assets. Okay, so let's say it goes out. The range, all of your LP is converted into ETH. Um, I guess what we, we, what we're sort of uh, calling like this um, yeah, on-chain limit order, and then uh, that'd be fine. But if you want it to sort of function that way, you have to make sure that it doesn't sort of come back into your range um, before you have chance. You, you have chance to sort of remove it because otherwise you're going to get uh, USDC again. Right? You're going to get um, partial uh, partial LP being USDC in some ETH, right? So yeah, um, this again, this is something that um, I don't know. I think needs to be experimented with and maybe modeled out just a bit. Um, it could be something that could be interesting. This concentrated uh, liquidity model, um, simply because of the low, the low slippage, uh, and keeping in mind that yeah, you'd have to sort of monitor it to sort of remove the, the LP before uh, the price sort of comes back into range, right? And I don't know, maybe that could be coded into a bot, which uh, I don't know how efficient it would be. Um, or if there are any other, I guess, limitations to it, but uh, I don't know. Um, theoretically, it, it seems somewhat viable, right? So you're sort of getting um, decent execution. Well, yeah, you're getting good execution brushes with low slippage, which is uh, quite interesting. And um, yeah, obviously the, the liquidity is is deep because it's uh, um, it's obviously in this concentrated liquidity model rather than it being sort of spread across the entirety of the, the price curve. Um, I think that's actually it. I, don't, I think there's like two more slides. Uh, yeah, so like, I just like to see if anybody was yeah, interested in reading about them. Um, but that's that, that's pretty much it, I guess. Uh, I don't know if anybody's got any questions. That was a bit, a bit much to take in, but uh, um, I guess not very token much related. <laughs> um, I guess the only like link it, ha it could have to tokenomics is sort of yeah how I mean projects obviously want to. Or sometimes required to buy back the tokens, so they should obviously do that in the most efficient manner, right? And if those orders orders are large, then it is something that has to be taken into consideration. But uh, yeah, granted, it probably isn't very much related topic. <laughs> oh, it's, I mean, you do these very detailed, very technical deep dives extremely well, I think. Um, but but yeah, it is. It's technical <laughs> and it's very deep. Yeah, um, yeah probably not. Um, I don't. I mean, no. yeah, I don't have any questions per se. I think you did. I mean, considering that you started by saying you didn't have time to research it much, I'm pretty impressed that you were <laughs> able to do a like 35 minute presentation. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for for preparing it and doing that. It's fantastic. Um, but just you know, 
compared to the other ones. Like this is this is like, in my opinion, this is expert level. So if you guys don't understand everything he said, then don't feel bad about that, please. That's, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, uh, but to be honest, when I was sort of putting it together, I was like, I mean, I shouldn't really be like sharing this simply because of that reason, so to speak. Um, but because we didn't have anything else, I just thought, well, I mean, I was going to sort of yeah. research it anyway, so. Uh, oh, it's, it's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, this would make a, I mean, we're recording the audio. <clears throat> you make a Twitter thread out of this. You can do all kinds of stuff with it. Yeah. You do a Twitter space, even if you want. But yeah, the, yeah, that'd be, that'd be right. yeah, the technical topics, we still have to find like the right audience for it. Cause I think this is definitely the, you're like on high, like, like yeah, high altitude, agree, like thin air, right? Like not many people would be able to fully yeah. get that and like have a, have like a meaningful discussion. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's interesting. It's very practical. Because yeah. it's related directly to like what do you want? If you need to do this in your protocol, then you have these kind of solutions. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I, I would I like. Have Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. No. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, I do have one question, but it might be that I don't understand it, and so and the regarding the concentrated liquidity. So if I really don't understand it, then I will just go and read the. The article that you linked. Um, uh -huh. I, from what I understand, is it like betting on the price? Basically, you put your money there, and then you wait that it shifts towards the the the, the price that will change your asset. Is is it something related so, to this so far? Yeah. So I, I, I yeah. I mean, um, in retrospect, uh, like I said, it, it wasn't sort of designed. For it to be its intention, right? That this like limit order functionality is just sort of something that can be can be done uh, with it, right? But in, in the, the reason it was like the the initial design was for it to be a lot more capital efficient, right? So, what does cap capital efficient mean? It means obviously earning fees for the amount of capital you're providing. So, just like the basic example is, if we compare like a, a V2 pool and a V3 pool. Let's say you provide, I don't know, 200K worth of LP. Um, yeah. And let's just assume that that generates you, I don't know, 10,000 um, in fees, right? Now, yeah. if the price is only, um, and, and like I said, because you're sort of providing that LP all the way along the curve from zero to infinity, the price of Ethereum isn't really going to, like, why would you provide uh, liquidity for Ethereum at like 10 USDC? And mm -hmm. similarly, at like 100,000 UCC, right? It's, it's inefficient capital. This is sort of like lingering there. Uh, yeah. So the idea is that you should have concentrated that liquidity into a small range. And what does that mean? It means that maybe I can provide 20K worth of USC, uh, liquidity and maybe still generate that 10K, um, similar, similar sort of what you're doing. But yeah. obviously, it's, yeah, it's uh, a lot less, uh, it's a lot more capital efficient. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of. Yeah, okay. providing ten times less um, less amount of of, uh, of liquidity there. And in 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 relation to this, um, it's like betting on the price. You can somewhat say that, yeah. I mean, you sort of have to sort of think, okay, so where is the price journey going to be for this asset? Where is it going to trade, right? Um, yeah. And then I can sort of pick that range. Um, but it is just sort of, I guess, a uh, how do you say? An unintended design feature that it sort yeah. of flips into yeah, it's just 
impermanent loss taken to the extreme, I guess you could say. Um, to some degree, yeah. Okay, okay, thanks. Yeah, I, don't, I was thinking, like, is there any way that we could maybe, I don't know, like, look at, I don't know, maybe, maybe based off of the curriculum, like the, the, um, the tokenomics course that you, that you did, Lois, and sort of maybe, I don't know, have study groups that sort of, are sort of based on that rather than maybe yeah, people sort of coming up with topics themselves. Um, or not, yeah. maybe if, yeah. I mean, or even more uh, basic. So, you know, we're doing these uh, Twitter threads at the moment that kind of capture basic concepts. I mean, that's like, you know, because the course so far is all, it's like intro level, right? It's all, um, yeah. you know, building the base, the basic understanding. And I mean, we could also use some of the Twitter threads at the moment, posting two or three per week, and they always like, you know, um, what's demand, what's supply, what's token burning. Like, we can probably yeah. go through a couple of those and have some discussion about it. So we could try yeah. that out. And the nice thing yeah. is with those, the the <clears throat> the research, so to say, is already done there, and so cap we could just recap it, and then we can just come up with some scenarios and talk those through, I guess, or maybe, I guess it's always most interesting if you find uh, real world examples, right? Protocols that have done stuff with token burning or whatever, like we could look at Binance, uh, BNB and just, yeah. but pulling that together would also not be so much work. You know, we could research that pretty quickly and then we just chat about it. I think that would, that would be something we could try. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, Mm. No, I, like, I don't know if the token engineering commons have course out or something. Um, I don't know if it's based on like tokenomics per se. Uh, obviously, token engineering is a bit different. But uh, maybe there's like some other places where we could just find like a basic index to sort of see if there's anything that we may be missing um, that could be interesting to cover yeah. instead of groups too. No, I'll, I'll take a look because you feel anything. Around. Um, so, Ron, you had put on uh, burning tokens on the list. Did you? Would you like to talk about it today or next time, maybe? Uh, I actually haven't prepared uh, much about it. So, if we talk about it, it would be more uh, discussion. Yeah, uh, that's fine. Um... Yeah. So, so yeah. Basically, the question I had in mind is. Is does it make sense for a protocol that has a capped supply, so not Ethereum, for example? Does it make sense to burn token, or does it mean that the values that you defined in your tokenomics in the beginning are not sustainable, and so you need to adjust these numbers to increase the value of your token, for example? yeah, because you didn't plan the vesting schedule and this kind of thing. So this is basically the the thought that I had in my head. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah no, it makes sense. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking through different scenarios. I mean, uh, it can, I can, I guess it's been used in all of the above, right? <laughs> um, sometimes it's sometimes burning is a adjustment mechanism for supply capped or not but you were asking specifically for a capped supply token so in a way like there was a good article um from a vc 
He said stop burning tokens, buy back and build instead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I thought that that was smart. Like it took me a minute to understand what he's trying to say, but basically instead of uh, burning the tokens, invest revenue to buy them back, and then rather uh, use that use that as funding for to incubate stuff that's built on top of your protocol. Um, so you know, make these tokens basically a grant that you can then give out and have people use that as capital to build something. And I think that's that makes sense to me because it's in a way it's a, it's more creative, right? It's because ultimately the the value is driven by build, people building on top of whatever you've done, because it, that that's how you make sure you get a lot of active users, right? So I think that's why Ethereum works well because it has the most projects built on Ethereum. Um, and I think that's where, I don't know, a lot of other ecosystems, like I think Polygon would give away tons of uh, fun, you know grants to have people build on Polygon. Um, but that's not, that's not exactly, I guess, the question that you asked. Um, yeah, I, I mean, mean, for me, that makes sense that Ethereum just burn their token because they need to counter kind of the, the infinite inflation. Mm -hmm. uh, but for others, I would, I mean, it's always the utopia that when you define your tokenomics, you decide the number of token and it just makes sense. And like you choose it, you don't choose a random number, but I feel like if you burn, it's because at this moment in time, the value that you expected your token to have is not is not there and so you need to adjust but then you just maybe it's because you didn't provide enough value mm -hmm. with your protocol your product is not advanced enough yeah you can uh, like there's there's a, there's a really good example of this in like game design where you have yeah you have like uh sinks and sources and if you sort of don't get that balance right right if you don't get the the demand to sort of um yeah, if you if you don't get the demand right to sort of couple the supply, and you're emitting too many tokens, then it's sort of yeah, you uh, you don't have the maybe the value, the token value that you want, right? Um, and yeah, I guess that sort of like fits into like what yeah, Ethereum has sort of done, like monetary policy-wise, sort of burning after the fact. Um, but I sort of like I I like this yeah, um, buy back and. I make model two. We just it, like for cap supplies. It makes more sense to me. Um, yeah. yeah. Although, so like you know how Binance uh, did it, they just I think burned tokens off of the treasury, so to say. Yeah. So they just uh, it was more a marketing thing, right? So they were like, oh, total supply is re re reduced now, and. Mm -hmm. Basically, they you know they, they publicized that a lot, and they were just like, hey, we're gonna build, you know, we're gonna burn, whatever, or whatever it was, it was a couple million dollars worth of token. But the thing is, I think the tokens they burned weren't even in circulating supply. Yeah. So, so the real impact is very little. It's just psychological. Um, it's optics. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think that's kind of the you know like nothing against finance, but that's kind of the dumbest way you can do it. Um, it was like cool at the time because I think they were the first ones to kind of use that mechanism, you know, as a marketing uh, tool. But mm -hmm. I think the way Ethereum does it is is uh, is a lot smarter because they burn. <clears throat> Sorry, my voice is complete garbage, but don't worry about it. <laughs> um, <laughs> they burn uh, tokens 
from the uh, transaction fees, right? And so the, yeah. the cool thing about it is that if if stuff like if tokens were used to pay transaction fees, then that means um, that means that value has been created in the network, right? Because yeah. it, because a transaction in the network, in fact, is what makes the network valuable. So then burning a portion of that, I think, is pretty clever because it's like, hey, we've created value and now actually we're reducing supply in proportion. And I think that that can have a uh, definitely have a, you know, significant effect. So they have a, you know, but my point being, you have to couple the burning to your value creation. If you just yeah. burn uh, really willy nilly because maybe you've made a mistake with your um, uh, allocations, then yeah, I, I think it's, that's not very, it's not very smart. Yeah. So, so the, do you do you think of any example where the supply is capped and it makes sense even if you create value to burn? Because I mm. I think in Ethereum case it makes sense because otherwise there is there's just no limit there's no end. Yeah. That's a good question. I mean, if the if the ultimate outcome would be that there's only one token left, then <laughs> I'd have to come up with a reason why that makes sense. Um, I guess it, it sort of uh, relates to how the token, yeah, the purpose of the token, right? I mean, if it is sort of a bootstrapping me mechanism, um, I think that's different from it actually being like an ownership, uh, like equity, I guess you could say. So, um, yeah, there will obviously be a case where uh, if it's burned, you'd sort of end up with, yeah, pretty much no tokens, right? And I think that could be a possibility if it's uh, if it's a bootstrap mechanism. In that, it would be sort of somewhat a way to sort of like wean the product so users off of the uh, yeah the drug. Um, but then, if it it doesn't make sense, obviously it doesn't make any sense if it is sort of like this ownership model. As in, yeah, imagine for me, just slowly accruing more um, ownership simply because the product is being used, um, but they're not using it right. That doesn't make, that doesn't make sense. Um, which is funny because I guess that's somewhat similar to proof of stake, but uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> okay. Okay, well, anyway, this, is, this was just my, my thought. I'm going to research this a bit. Yeah. See if I yeah. find any case. Yeah, I mean, if you so based on this brief discussion, if you research a little bit and you want to come bring it back, that would be very interesting, I think. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah I saw my you sent me the the article already, right? Oh yeah, I sent it in the chat. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Um, and like, don't don't feel like you have to sort of put a, like do a presentation or anything. I just to do that because it's sort of easier for me to present or like talk no. through things. Um, this is like open to do whatever yeah, you like. So. I think share, share whatever you feel, but don't feel you have to do a 15 slide presentation. That's not that's not required. Yeah. Yeah. Like if you have one or two little visual aids, that's fantastic. But it's not, you know, it's not mandatory. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Cool. Anybody else uh, have anything? I think it's. I I mean I I enjoy this. I'm happy to hear what you guys think. Um, I mean we already had some ideas for improvement that we can do. If you guys have any other comments, questions, remarks, please share and if not i mean always feel free obviously to use the education chat or any of our other channels um don't have to wait for the study group either and uh yeah thanks for coming i enjoyed it i learned something thanks mason thanks for all for thanks, taking, 
taking part in the discussion a lot. And um, yeah, thank you, Mason, for the super in-depth deep dive into the large market orders. It's really cool. <laughs> no problem. Thanks for listening. <laughs> yeah, and then we'll be back uh, with this in two weeks. I'll schedule the event now. And yeah, but I'm sure I'll see you guys in between. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. See ya. Cool. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. Have a good one.